All right, page 655, if you have a coffee house Bible, Jeremiah 7. Um, remember this, this old quote from, this is Tolkien. This is Fellowship of the Ring. Frodo, he's got the bad news. Like, it all depends on you. The world is, is going to hell in a handbasket. And he says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. Do you ever feel like that? I, I wish, why do, why do I have to live in this time? With this thing happening, why can't it be like it used to be, right? The good old days or the ways it, that it, it was. But here we are in this time and we have to face this thing. But this is what Gandalf says. He says, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that's given us. Now, during the pandemic, I saw this quote all over the place. And I was like, yeah, this is tough. But honestly, I felt it really about the whole cultural moment that we're in, not just the pandemic. But it's like, why, why do I have to be in this time? Like, I want to go fight, you know, the, like the Aryans, like Athanasius. Um, one of my theology professors, he had this, this African theologian, Athanasius, on his mug, and it says, the original Orthodox gangster. And I was like, okay, he's the OG. He, like, I want to I go defend the cause of Christ theologically. And instead... The call of this time is to defend the cause of Christ in a sense of identity. You know, it's, it's shift. Why this time? Why these issues? Why these problems? I, I feel it sometimes. Maybe you do too. Um, it shows up a lot. And so that's where I want to start today is like in our time. And that's where I want to end today also. Here's what's going on in our time. Um, I've talked about this a couple of months ago, but I want to share it again. There's a recent research from Ryan Burge. He's like a religion data guy. And a couple of other co-authors, they wrote a big book called The Great Dechurching. And what they found is that we are currently in the middle of the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country. And they said it's, it's a bigger religious shift than the first Great Awakening, the second Great Awakening, and the Billy Graham Crusades combined, except in the opposite direction. There are 40 million people who've stepped away from church. They have de-churched. Their language, de-churched, means you were in church at least once a month, and now you're in church less than once a year or once a year less. Forty million people went from church to no church in the last generation. It's, this is the largest, that I, at least our country has ever seen, this is the largest decline that anyone has ever seen. It's got to be one of the largest declines that the world has ever seen when it comes to Christian faith, and we are in this time. This is our time. Why do we have to live in the greatest decline that the world has ever seen? But here we are. But it, it's not just a decline big picture. The decline is really focused. Young non-Christians are avoiding Christianity, and young Christians are abandoning church. This is David Kinnaman in his book, Faith for Exiles. Excellent book. And it seems that everybody's affected. There's no theological tradition. There's no... There's no ethnicity, there's no political affiliation, there's no education level, there's no geographic location or income bracket that escapes this de-churching trend. It's just pervasive in our country. And it's, it's actually bad news. It's bad for the people who are doing it. They tend to be like fragmented and shriveled and more anxious and overwhelmed. Life is harder, they're more suicidal. They smoke more, they drink more, they die more. It's, and this is the trend that our, our whole culture is going in. And so our country, I think, has one of its greatest needs ever because there are more millions of people not walking in discipleship to Jesus than ever before. 
There are more millions of people not walking into discipleship to Jesus in our country than ever before. And one of the big things that's happening is what the authors of the Great Desertion call the misgenerational handoff. So picture baton. You're running a relay, and the baton is being handed to the next runner. We read Psalm 145. You could read Psalm 78. It's where one generation shares to the next generation that God is the God of all generations, and it's handed down, right, from one generation to the next. But they're saying that there's been a missed generational handoff, and we see this because the youth age, teenagers in America, are the most churched group there is. Their religious interest is the highest, but what happens when they turn 18, in that range of 18 to 29, they are the least churched generation that there is. Somehow you go from most to least like that. It's because there's a handoff that happens. This is, this is our time. There's something that happens in the teenage years where life gets busy and priorities shift. There's something happened in the post-teenage years where you go to college and you're trying to figure out who you are and what is your faith or versus your parents' faith. Church attendance drops, relationships disconnect, and the fibers that hold faith together fall apart. David Kinneman, in his descriptions of resilient faith, he says there's just a couple of descriptions. Just listen to how he describes a person with resilient faith. He says they're regularly involved in a worshiping community. They go to church about once a month. They go to church once a month, and they have a commitment to Jesus who was crucified and risen to defeat sin and death. Okay, so they, they go to church, and they believe in Jesus. Number three, and they affirm that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And number four, they have to affirm some missional statement like, my faith informs how I live. He says, if you just take those, those things, they go to church, they believe in scripture, they know that Jesus died for them, and that their faith wants to inform how they live. He says, less than 10% of young adults have that faith in the United States. So compared to generations in the past, they're more isolated, they're more anxious, they're more overwhelmed. And this is our time. But I think the problem is perhaps even worse than this. I was reading a few people, and I'm just totally convinced that our, our age, our, there's this huge opportunity that comes by living in the era of the greatest decline that the world has ever seen. And it's that God is pruning his church and he's purging some things and he's going to produce one of the greatest renewals that the world has ever seen and <laughs> but there's this issue here that nominal christianity is dying that, and that there are these vestiges of religion and church that are just disappearing from culture and that lukewarm faith is really falling away and so i think we need this wake up from cultural christianity but then it's like, but what if there's nothing to revive? And I was listening to Kerry Newhoff. He was talking with the author of this book. He says, I grew up in church. I believe in the value of community, but I can no longer convince my friends to be a part of a community because they don't know what community is. They've never had it. They grew up out of church. They don't even know what it is. Everyone eats dinner in front of their devices. They don't talk to each other. They go to their rooms. We live separate lives. And he says, it's like there's nothing to call them back to because they never experienced it. Kinnaman says, the age-old questions of being human remain unasked, shriveling like neglected seedlings, deep spiritual longings which ought to be lovingly tended and skillfully cultivated are choked to death by binge television, immersive gaming, and social media scrolling. One of my favorite preachers was preaching at a big kind of pastor's conference. He 
He said there was just like God came down and filled the room and he was doing something. He took that same lesson a couple of weeks later and went to a college conference. He delivered the same message. He says in fresh power and he like this is his kind of this is his message. He knows this one resonates. He says, but it just felt flat. There was another leader there who said, it was all I could do to not stand up and shout, Lord, we need revival. But then I looked around and saw nothing. Students scrolling their phones, Instagram, TikTok, checked out disinterested. The speaker said, there is nothing to revive. So if revival is about God coming where he's wanted, where there's a hunger and a thirst for God, what happens if nobody is hungering and thirsting for righteousness? What do we do for a generation whose parents have already walked away? Whose parents already prioritized the ball field over the communion of saints? Who treated the faith once we're all delivered to the saints like a buffet item? What do we do for a generation shrunken by the larger-than-life veneer of video games, Netflix, and films? What do we do for a culture that inundates and overwhelms with its deconstruction of every institution, especially church? We have to do something. And if we want different results, we have to do something different. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. I want to tell you about another guy who lived in times of decline, renewal, and decline. Um, it's 655 in your coffee house Bible. It's Jeremiah chapter 7. I don't know if you know the story of Jeremiah, but Jeremiah was born in a great de-churching moment, you could call it. And you could, you could see in his context, it shaped his entire calling. You know what I mean by context is calling? It's like your circumstances, your time, your place, your people. Like that's, that's where God has put you. You may not want to be put there, but context is calling. And so it is, is for Jeremiah. Jeremiah, he was born in the reign of a king called Manasseh. Can I, I'm going to read Eugene Peterson's description of Manasseh. He reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years, a dark and evil half century. He encouraged a pagan worship that involved whole communities and orgies. He installed cult prostitutes at shrines throughout the countryside. He imported wizards and sorcerers who enslaved the people in superstitions and manipulated them with their magic. The man could not do enough evil. There seemed to be no end to his barbarous cruelties. His capacity for inventing new forms of evil seemed bottomless. His appetite for the sordid was insatiable. One day he placed his son on the altar in some terrible ritual of witchcraft and burned him as an offering. This is the king when Jeremiah was born. This is the world in which he learned to walk and talk and play. Manasseh dies. He hands the kingdom over to his son, Ammon. He reigns very briefly because he's assassinated. And then, you remember from last week, little eight-year-old Josiah is put on the throne. This little boy doesn't know what he's doing, but he knows he doesn't want to do it like that. And he really has no idea what to do. But when he's 20 years old, when he's 20, the greatest reformation in biblical history is launched by a 20-year-old. When he's 20... Hilkiah the priest is over at the temple, and he's, 
he's doing some cleaning because Josiah asked him to. The temple's in ruins. It's just desecrated. And while they're doing some cleaning, they find this old book that we would call Deuteronomy. And Hilkiah brings it to Josiah. And Josiah says, could you just read that? And he, for the first time in generations, reads the law of God to the king of Israel. And now Josiah knows what he has to do. Josiah goes on a war path against idolatry. He, he sends out all over the kingdom, every shrine and totem pole, every symbol and statue, he's going to dismantle it. Every priest that's enlisted in these causes, he's going to depose them and send them away. Some of these idols, it says that they ground them up into powder and they sprinkle them. In some places, they take human bones and they scatter them just to desecrate these sites so that no one will go back to these places. He reforms as much as any king can. Look at this, 2 Kings 23, 25. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did. With all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his strength, in accordance with all the law of Moses, Peterson says the reform was accomplished. Everything that a king's commands could do was done. Crime was stopped. Superstitious religion was sent packing. Immoral worship was banned. But getting rid of evil doesn't make people good. It didn't take Jeremiah long to realize that the reform was only skin deep. Everything had changed, but nothing had changed. The outward changes had been enormous. The inward changes were imperceptible. You see, Jeremiah does not minister during the reign of Manasseh, the, the wicked king. He ministers during the reign of Josiah and the kings that followed. He ministers after the Great Reformation. This is the context of Jeremiah chapter 7. This is Jeremiah's most famous sermon. You remember when Jesus, he goes to the temple and he stands in the courtyard and he says, this house has become, it was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, but it's become a den of robbers. And he announces the destruction of the temple. And do you know who he quoted the whole time? Jeremiah in this chapter. This is the, this is the sermon that almost got Jeremiah lynched. They, they took him, and they were going to murder him, but the Lord intervened through some people, and he escaped. This is the sermon that Jesus preached that got him killed. This is his most, it's his most controversial sermon, and it's spoken to religious reformers. It's spoken to a culture that says, I want to add on the worship of God on the weekends to the life that I'm still living. I want to have this external faith, even though the internal reality hasn't changed. There's no more shrines, right? There's, the pagan idolatry has ended publicly. But privately, everybody's still going about their business. This is the context. This is the time of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is going to suffer more than perhaps anyone besides Jesus in Scripture. You know, last week we were talking about broken cisterns. These cisterns that don't hold water that we're putting ourselves in. Later on in Jeremiah's life, they throw him in a broken cistern. He's just stuck in the mud until somebody comes by and rescues him. He was going to die in the pit. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was imprisoned. He was sent over to Egypt. The prophet called to the nations only gets to the nations because his people take him captive. He is just suffering his entire life. But this is resilient faith. 
for a time of decline that points to a great renewal in the work of God. So let's dive into what I'm calling the cost of half-hearted religion. And it's really in Jeremiah chapter 7. There's going to be three points. The first one is that half-hearted religion costs you the integrity of your heart. The integrity of your heart. I just want to read some of the sermon. Jeremiah chapter 7 verses 1 through 11. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim the message. Did you know in Hebrew there's not a word for temple? There's not a technical word for temple. It's the word house. Do you know what the Greek word for house is? Oikos. Yeah, that's it. So this is God's house. This is God's home. This is God's people. This is God's space where the presence of God is. And he says, I want you to go into the temple and I want you to say this. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. He says, I want you to turn what you have done, all the reforms aren't enough. So don't trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You see, they put away the idols, and now they have this slogan. This is God's house, God's house, God's here. We're, we're God's people. And it says, your slogans and your songs aren't working. Peterson says, it's like, singing a song in a church doesn't make you holy any more than like standing in a barn in Nain makes you a horse. It's like, that's not what's going to do it here. The slogan's not enough. The outward face isn't enough. So he says, if you really change your ways and your actions, and you deal with each other justly and justice, what's justice? He says, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. Now, in scripture, these are very often paired together. The foreigner is the, the stranger, the immigrant, the alien in some translation. The fatherless is the, the child who has no caretaker, no provider, and the widow is in a similar situation. She's desperate. She can't earn on her own. She can't inherit land. It's taken from her and entrusted to other men around her at this time. Uh, very often, the poor are also grouped in with this. And so that there have come to be called what we call the quartet of the, vul- of the vulnerable. The quartet of the vulnerable. These are people who are the gravity of oppression keeps them down and it's hard to get out. And he says, if you're not changing the interior of your heart to where it works out for the vulnerable. And he says, and you don't shed blood in this place. And if you don't follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land that I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and perjury and burn incense to Baal? This is like command six, seven, eight, nine out of the Ten Commandments. This is commands one and two, like no other God. And then you come and you stand before me in this house which bears my name. And then you say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. He says, I don't just watch in the temple. You think I'm small. You think I'm the God of the wilderness. And so you're going to worship me in the wilderness. And then everywhere else, you're going to have another God. You think I'm small. You think I'm the God of the temple. And then everywhere else in your own house, you're going to do something else. He says, I'm the God of heaven and earth. I can see it all. A den of robbers. Now, just to clarify, a lot of people think uh, den of robbers is in Jesus's sermon. It's about him or people charging money for different things. It's like den of robbers is a phrase... (laughs) I, I just watched a couple of Western movies this week where they go off to like this 
uh, canyon where they, they have seclusion from society. It's the place you go after you've robbed the stagecoach, right? <laughs> after you've robbed the bank, then you go to the den for safety. And he's saying, out there, you're living like the world, and then you come in here and think you're safe? He's like, I, I can see it out there. I can see it in here, too. So the, there's this cost of half-hearted religion, and I think the cost is the integrity of your heart. There's a couple of phrases that he uses, like, you're trusting in deceptive words. He says, you do this to your own harm. So when the church adopts the culture standards of morality, we lose our integrity. Can I just give a historical um, case study of this? This is from Jamar Tisby, his book, The Color of Compromise. It's about the racial history of the church in America. And he says, the, Tisby says, he's a historian, but a believer. He says, the failure of many Christians in the South and across the nation to decisively oppose racism in their families, in their communities, and even in their own churches, provided fertile soil for the seeds of hatred to grow. The refusal to act in the midst of injustice is itself an act of injustice. Indifference to oppression perpetuates oppression. We know this, don't we? He goes on, a survey of the history of racism in the church in the United States. It shows that the story is worse than most imagine. Christianity in America has been tied to the fallacy of white supremacy for hundreds of years. European colonists brought with them ideas of white superiority, paternalism toward darker-skinned people. And on this sandy foundation, they erected a society and a version of religion that could only survive through the subjugation of people of color. Minor repairs by the weakened warriors' racial reconcilers won't fix a flawed foundation. The church needs the carpenter from Nazareth to deconstruct the house that racism built and remake it into a house for all nations. That's strong, right? We can look back and we say, amen, Tisby. The church, yeah, the, I saw how the church, generations past, was adopting the standards of a culture instead of of Christ. And it led to systemic racism and oppression at every level of society, including the church. And then we close our eyes and think, but it won't happen today. Not just with racism, but with any other social issue where we adopt the morality of our culture, we forfeit our integrity in the process. And it creates this bifurcation where on Sundays we do one thing and the rest of the week we do something else. It creates this internal, external difference. So it's, integrity is about being held together, right? An integer is a whole number, not a fraction. It's a whole thing. Being integrated means it's every part is woven together. And what happens when we adopt the, the cultural religion of half-hearted religion, half, the culture standard of morality is that it disintegrates and pulls us apart. You end up thinking, how can Jesus be saying this? And yet I know this to be true over here on Monday and Tuesday. Whether it's about sexuality or gender or race or any other identity issue today. It's disorienting. And it leaves the church without a witness. It divides our internal and external selves. It makes religion seem private. There's nothing secularism wants more than to make your faith private. Like th this is, you know, the HR code. Like you can do that. You just can't do that here in front of everybody. It's like, look, Jesus isn't just Lord of my heart. He's Lord of heaven and earth. There's not a space where Christ isn't king. And so every space I go into, I go into as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. 
And this makes a lot of people uncomfortable, especially um, like public school teachers and HR people. And, you know, um, I'm thinking of my, my liability-minded people in the room. I get it. But integrity is where you are the same person no matter which room you're in. And if you're a different person in this room than you are when you go to work, it is disintegrating to you. You lose your integrity and your heart in the process. It is half your heart there, half your heart here, and the majority of your time is still going in a different place than it is in this room. It's disintegrating. Paul says people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and they will have a form of godliness, but they will deny its power, have nothing to do with these people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over the weak-willed, always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. There are truths that we stand on, and those truths are not found by adopting culture standards of religion and morality. Strong enough for you today? All right, number two. <laughs> I was like, Kelsey, when she saw me this morning, I was like, I'm about to explode. This <laughs> is like, I just, I, I just feel so much passion and conviction around <laughs> a lot of this. All right, number two. The cost of half-hearted religion, when you adopt the cultural religion around you, is that it costs you the presence of God. Let's, let's read this. Verse 12. Go now to the place in Shiloh. Shiloh is where there used to be a temple. Where I first made a dwelling for my name. And see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you didn't listen. I called you, but you didn't answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in. The place I gave to you and your ancestors, I will thrust you from my presence just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. That's the northern tribes. He says, I've already done it up there. I'm going to have to do it here too. So don't pray for this people, he tells Jeremiah, nor offer any plea or petition. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. Three times, he just repeats this. Don't pray for them. Why? Why not pray? He says, don't you see what they're doing? In the towns, in the streets of Jerusalem, the children gather the firewood, the father lights the fire, and the women knead the dough and make the cakes to offer to the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to arouse my anger. But am I the one they're provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? You see, a couple of these phrases, he says, I'm going to have to thrust you from my presence. It's not that I want this. I keep asking you to stay. God uses these spiritual and relational metaphors throughout Jeremiah. He says, it's like an adultery. He says, you're my wife and you just keep cheating on me. He says, it's like a father whose sons just run away from him. You know where Jesus tells a story of an older brother and a younger brother? He says, that's Jeremiah's story, <laughs> that God is a father, and his older brother Israel ran off, and then his younger brother Judah ran off too. He's like, I feel so betrayed by the people that I love. It's not that he's removing his presence from a people that are seeking him. He's doing all the seeking, and he's saying, I have to pull back for my own name's sake. And this is where the lynching began for Jeremiah. Jeremiah 26, all the people seized him, and they said, you must die. Why do you prophesy in the Lord's name that this house will be like Shiloh, and this city will be desolate and deserted? 
And all the people crowded around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. They started coming for him. Because he said, the presence of God does not go with you to church. So where is God? He says, God's pulling back. God isn't bound to any institution. He's not bound to any place or organization. He's not bound to a building. And in the context of Jeremiah 7, he says, this, it looks like this wholesome family atmosphere. You know, the kids are getting involved, and father's out there lighting the fire, and mom's in the kitchen, like, kneading the dough. And then they offer their, their pie to the great queen of heaven. You know, you know the queen of heaven? Yahweh's other wife? They've it's created this fictional character. It's, it looks so sweet. It's this wholesome family afternoon, Tim Mackey calls it. You can even have a barbecue later. He says, you might as well have the barbecue because that, what would have been offered to me in sacrifice, I don't want it. You just eat it. It's family night, only God is ignored. The gods of the culture around them are worshipped. Christopher Wright, in his commentary, he says, this, this Western quasi-religion of consumerism has a lot of similar characteristics to this queen of heaven. Children become targets of marketing and allies in the drive to possess, to pour out libations at the altar of profit, in the side chapels of the vast cathedrals of mammon we know as shopping malls. Are Christian families any different from the ambient culture and its idolatry? That's a hard word. He says, your temple won't save you if God's not in it. There's this subtle idolatry where it seems like because you're not going to a pagan temple and you're going to God's temple that you can just keep doing everything like the culture does in your home. He says, but God isn't in that stuff. It's not that God isn't accessible. It's that he's not accessible through the ways of the world. I'm reminded again of Paul in 2 Timothy. You, you know the word where he says, preach the word, be faithful in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. But it's the first verse of that. Why preach? And Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. It's the presence of God that, that gives the church not only its integrity, but its authority. In the presence of God, in the presence of Christ Jesus, that's where the power is. It's not in all the other stuff that we turn to in, in our habits, in our homes. Number three, the cost of half-hearted, like really cultural religion is that it will cost you the future of your children, the future of our children. Look at verse 30. The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name, and they have defiled it. They've built the high places in Topheth, in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, where they burned their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Topheth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. For they will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. The Valley of Hinnom is well known to us all. We just call it hell. This is hell. And when I say that, I mean that literally. Hell is the word Gehenna. 
and it means the Valley of Hinnom. And he says, you've chosen the slaughter of your own kids. Don't you see what cultural idolatry will cost you? This isn't what I want for you. This isn't something I came up with. You did this, not me. I want blessing. I want generational blessing. And you're choosing this instead. He says, but look where it leads. It it leads to Babylon coming in. And they're not only going to take your children that you're offering, but they're going to take every future generation too. And they're going to come and they're going to siege the city. And then they're going to take the corpses, and they won't even bury them, right? They'll just pile them up until there's no more room. It says the vultures will fly over, the carcasses will, will be here. This word becomes our word hell. And, but what hell is, it's not just that you're suffering for your sin. It's not like eternal conscious torment. Hell is the consequences of life and the primary consequence in scripture of what it will cost you if you give your life to sin, if you give your life to the way of the world, is it will cost you your children. You think that the worst thing you can give up is yourself or your soul. That is not scripture's story. The thing it will take is your children. Christopher Wright in his commentary, there are modern forms of child sacrifice that may not reek of the fires of Gehenna but are as destructive on a massive scale. These range from the statistics of social abortion, the suffering of children in broken marriages, confused promiscuity, the abuse of children in pornography, child slavery, sex trafficking, the hemorrhage of young life, and the military adventures of so many nations. He's like, we're just, when people give their their families and their homes and their cultures to, to these things, it's always cost the children. And I think we're in an age where we're losing our children. Um, The largest survey of young adults was done by a sociologist named Christian Smith. He's now a Notre Dame professor. And one of the kind of outworkings was a book called Almost Christian. Now, some of you have heard me talk about Almost Christian probably before. but um, This is an Oxford University Press work. You know, this isn't like some right-wing you know, website that I found. (laughs) This is Oxford University Press in an academic work saying, let me save you some trouble. Here's the gist of what we're about to read. American young people are theoretically fine with religious faith, but it doesn't concern them very much, and it's not durable enough to survive long after they graduate from high school. And one more thing, we're responsible. So what's happening in this adoption of half-hearted religion or where you you have the weekend worship plus all the other stuff that goes unchanged. They say that most teenagers have a positive view of religion, but mostly they just don't give it much thought. It's like a sport in high school. It's part of being a well-rounded kid. They think it's a good thing that promotes niceness fairly well, and so they're not hostile to it. If you want to do it, that's fine. I'm going to play in the band. I'm going to be on the ball team. I'm going to be in the play, and I'm going to do this church thing for a while. A number of institutions are so built into adolescents' lives, like school, the media, peer groups, that teenagers don't even think of them as holding sway over their schedules or decisions. They simply are. Teenagers typically view religion, on the other hand, as optional. Religion functions as an add-on, an extracurricular activity, something you do if you have the time. And so churches seem to be, have offered to teenagers a kind of diner theology, a bargain religion, cheap 
but satisfying, whose gods require little in the way of fidelity or sacrifice. So who can blame churches, really, for earnestly ladling this stew into teenagers, filling them with an agreeable porridge about the importance of being nice and feeling good about yourself and saving God for emergencies? We have convinced ourselves that this is the gospel. I was listening to John Tyson. He was talking about Eric Liddell. You remember the movie Chariots of Fire? Anybody? Really interesting movie. You should check it out sometime, especially before our Sabbath series in April. Uh, Eric Liddell is famous. He's an Olympic gold medalist. He ran the 400 in the Paris Olympics, and he won gold, and that's not why he's famous. He's famous because he refused to run on Sundays. This is Tyson. He says, imagine that. Imagine someone who won't do sports on Sundays. Imagine that. Imagine Christians saying that there is actually a Lord's Day where the number one thing is to honor him. You worship him. You gather together as a family. You feast on the goodness of God. You organize your life around the kingdom of God, not teenage activities. Can you imagine? So often, if we're not careful, we let the liturgies of our culture dictate the pace of our life, the practices, and our rhythms. We put everything in the place of God. And then we wonder, when our kids go to college, why they put everything in the place of God. For some of you, he says, this is your first and last time at our church. And I want to say, honestly, it's been great having you. <laughs> Strong. What they find is that teenagers basically have no language to talk about their faith. They say they are strikingly inarticulate. They, can't, they said for most teenagers, when they interviewed them, hundreds of teenagers, they found that it seemed like it was the first time any adult had ever asked them about their faith. Now, I, I love a lot of the things that we do in our gathering every Sunday. But when we're asking kids, our kids at the dinner table about their faith, what they're answering with is language from the Apostles' Creed. They believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of Heaven. They believe in Jesus Christ. They're also answering with language from the generosity liturgy and the confession of sin. It's like they have this robust vocabulary that's been handed to them. Whenever we circle up and share the table, we get to hear them answer. It's not the first time when they're 18 years old and some researchers saying, what happened to your faith, that anybody's asked them about Christianity and the, and the way of God in their life. I, I think all of this is on purpose. And so in, in our time, in our time, we have to choose something that's a, a little different than this. So let me, let me reverse these. And then just imagine for a minute what it could be like. If this is half-hearted religion, when you, when you take the culture and you put it into weekend worship and it, you lose the integrity of your heart and you have to be in two places. You lose the presence of God. God's like, I'm not in that stuff. I'm here for you if you want it. And then you lose the future of your children. And what they found, when I moved to Memphis in 2008, the year before, there was this really important study done by David Kinnaman. It was called You Lost Me. And what they found in 2007 was that of all the kids coming through youth groups, 59% of them were walking away from church by the time they were 25. 59% were just leaving. That's n it's just confounding to me that this is just the way it is in our, in our country. But what Kinnaman says now is that it's actually worse. Now it's 64%. It's accelerated since I moved to Memphis. But when I moved to Memphis, that was enough to stir something up in me. It was like, we, we have to do something different. There are three things that I became convicted of as, as a young man in grad school in a new city. And those three things that we have to do child and youth ministry differently. 
we, we have to do it differently. Otherwise, we're just expecting the same result. The second thing is we have to do transitions better from youth ministry into college ministry. We have to integrate those somehow. Where you don't have to go to some other place where it's, it's a part of the same community. And number three, and most importantly, we have to do parenting differently. Instead of treating Christianity like another item on the buffet where it's just added on like a, a temple Sunday. And then the rest of the week is just filled with the things of the world. We have to do it differently. And if we don't do those three things, I think we're going to continue to see the same things. And so if, what if we had a wholehearted faith? I think the first thing we'd find is that we would find integrity of heart. That you could be the same person whatever room you're in. That you could have convictions. You don't have to stand on deceptive truths and even though they're worthless and you know they lead to people's harm, you could just stand on the, on the truth of God and what he's delivered to us in the gospel. That it's not skin deep, that it's wholehearted. This is like Josiah, right? Where it's like never before was there a guy who, who sought the Lord with all his heart, and with all his soul and all his mind. Where does that come from? That's Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today will be upon your hearts. This is wholehearted faith. Look what he says next, though. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk on the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. He's like, put it everywhere. Make it all a part of your life wherever you go. You have the ways of God and the words of God on, on your lips and in your eyes. Whatever you're doing, invite God into it. This is integrity. Integrity is where you get to be the same person in a wholehearted devotion to God. The second thing that I think it gives us is the presence of God. You remember that word for house? This is New Testament. It's all over the New Testament. You are God's house. This is not God's house. This is Poplar Plaza, like, and at some point, you know, we'll probably be in a different space. I don't know when that is, and that's going to be totally fine with me. And on in-home worship Sundays, on the first Sunday of the month, when you're in a, your group's home, and I'm in my group's home, and we're scattered all around, you know, God's in that house too? God, God has made you, your body, yourself, his house, and the presence and power of God is there and accessible to you. But it's not accessible in, in the ways of culture. You can tap into this power. You want a real, durable, resilient faith? Embrace the reality of the presence of God. Step into worship and prayer and scripture every single day. Weekend worship ain't it. It's a whole lot more than that. You need the wholehearted thing. And the last thing that it gives us, I think, is the future of our children. Remember those progressive commercials? I love them. Where it's like, you're becoming your parents, Right? It's like, they just come out with a new one every other week. Those are my favorite, and they have been around for 10 years, and I still laugh at them. But what the research has found is that contrary to popular misguided cultural stereotypes and frequent parental misconceptions, we believe that the evidence clearly shows that the single most important social influence on the religious and spiritual lives of adolescents is their parents. Parents will most likely get what they are, this recognition may be empowering or alarming or both, but it is a fact. Another researcher, let me give you some good news from our research. Your kids are more connected to you than you might think. 
And so there's this vision that I think we have as a church. It's a vision for multi-generational ministry. And there's a lot of pieces to it just this year that I'm excited to tell you about more next week. One of those pieces is that this year, even this week, a small strategic team is forming within Oikos Kids to start developing intentional pathways of discipleship for zero to 18, intentional handoffs from elementary into youth group, youth group into college, college into young adult. We have to figure out how to do children and youth ministry differently, and we have to figure out how to do the transitions and rites of passage in the faith differently. But part of this vision, it's not just parents equipped. It is that, but it's also a family of faith where spiritual mothers and fathers come into the lives of college students and young adults and little children, and where college students and young adults come into the lives of little children and make themselves useful and serve the needs of the older generation. It's a multi-generational web that's called a family of brothers and sisters and spiritual mothers and fathers. We need intentional pathways. Yes, we need a diverse, multi-generational family to do this ministry, to do it differently. This is what the researchers call the closest thing to a silver bullet for generational faith. It's to have your parents walking in the context of adult relationships with your kids. That's why kids worship with us. That's why kids are in our Oikos groups. That's why we don't do a bunch of kid stuff. The research says that it's not about how many teenage friends your teenager has. It's about how many adult friends your teenager has. And like this isn't disputed. There's all kinds of research saying the same thing. We have to do it differently in those three ways. But let me close with just a little imagination. I'll save some vision for next week, and then Kelsey, I would love for you to pray. If context is calling, and you and me are like Frodo saying, not in my time. Then we look at our time, we realize we live in the time of the greatest decline that our country has ever seen, where the handoff isn't being made. If context, that's our context, is calling, then what does that mean we should be doing? Let's read Habakkuk 3.2, Kels, this can shape some of your prayers perhaps. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. In 2008, I moved to Memphis, and I became convicted. I was devastated by the friends that I had that were leaving the faith, the family that I had that were leaving the faith, by the churches that were leaving the young people, by the ministers, ministries that were squandering resources. And I thought, somebody is going to get to plant a church over by the University of Memphis, and I would love for that to be me one day. Ten years later, the Lord gave me one of the greatest gifts of my life in getting to help plant Oikos Church with you. We are here, we are here to contend for a spirit-led movement for the next generations. For our kids, we're, we're going to do child and youth ministry differently than a lot of churches. Praise be to God for that, I think. We're going to do transitions differently. We're trying to integrate college ministry into our church. Not so where they have to go off to some other place and then refine themselves again, not only at 18, but then again at 25, where they already have a web of relationships in their local community. 
We are here not only for the next generation, we are here for the emerging generation of college and young adults who are confused and confounded and need, need to know what the calling of God is on their identities and their work and their lives and their families and their relationships. We're, we're here for that reason. Context is calling. That's our context. We are here to do something about it in our time, in our time, in our city. And, man, we know the power of God, right? It's like, God, we just want you to do it right now. Forty million people is enough. But it takes a community who is passionately hungry for more, who is prepared for that next generation and is going to do something different about it. And I want to be a part of that community. I think that community could be us in our time, in our city. I think we could see a great renewal of the next generation, the emerging generations who are so desperate for meaning and transcendence that they don't know where else to turn. In the decline and the removal from church, may God so break their hearts that they have to turn to him for the good news of Jesus Christ, to rescue them, to awaken and illuminate could we be a church that does that? I think we could. Do you remember, last thing, last thing. This is my, this is my Dunkirk part of the speech, all right? <laughs> you remember Churchill? Have you seen the movie Dunkirk? It's like the entire British army is basically done in. The lines have broken. The Germans and the Panzers have pushed through all the way. They've pinned them in at the coast, and there's no rescue. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers in the hope of the world against the Nazi regime is at stake. And Churchill, he, this is his, we will fight in the beaches speech. He calls this radio broadcast and he's trying to mobilize an island of people in Britain to go do some miraculous rescue operation. Just, they, they devote a day to fasting and to prayer. Everyone there are longer lines to go pray and to fast that day than there are to like see the Queen of England at her funeral. He has, he has this, and he says this at the end of his speech. He says, we will not be content with a defensive war. We've been given the powers, and we shall use those powers without the slightest hesitation until we are satisfied, and more than satisfied, that this malignancy in our midst has been effectively stamped out. He says, many old and famous have fallen away. They may fall. And this is where we are in our time. There are many who have fallen away. Many old, many famous, many big name pastors and scholars. Maybe your parents, maybe your brothers and sisters have fallen away. He says, but we will not take the defensive posture. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight. And we shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. And we shall never surrender. Kelsey, I need some help here. Could we contend right now for this? And I don't want it to just be right now for a few minutes of praying for this. I would love for your hunger for the next generation, for your own kids, for the kids who've walked away, for your kids who've walked away. I would love for our hunger to not only show up in the contending prayer room, but also to show up in that small group 
where you're committed to the lives of young people even though they don't have a lot to offer you, and young people where you're committed to the lives of older people and older children even though you don't see what they have to offer to you. Because this is the way. This is how we fight. We fight around the table of the Lord Jesus. We fight with love, and we will not give up. Kels, lead us in. Oh, Father, we feel um, inadequate for this calling. We look around and we think, um, this is too big and this is too hard. Who are we? But God, we trust that you have placed us here in this time and in this place for a purpose. We trust that it is not in our own strength or our own knowledge or our own wisdom that we have to accomplish your mission, but instead in your strength and your power and your wisdom by your spirit. We ask that you pour out that spirit in abundance on your people. God, would you light a fire in our hearts um, that just doesn't even make it an option to sit still? Would you give us eyes to see where culture is creeping in, where we've become complacent, where we have taken on a form of Christianity that is not um, true and undefiled religion, but instead it's a cultural religion, where we place... um, not just your word and your ways on the altar, but even our own children, Lord, where we're raising them up in a way that, um, that dilutes what you have for them, that doesn't give them a true and a lasting and um, an enduring faith, but instead it's something fragile, something that looks far too much like culture. Would you help us to see, Lord, it is sneaky and it comes in under the radar. Would you give us eyes to see by your spirit? Would you wake us up? Would you, um, again, light our hearts on fire for what you have for us? Would we not be content to continue in the ways that we have been going, Lord, personally or as, Christ- and as Christians at large, Lord, the church? Would we be um, burdened? Would our hearts burn because of the decline of your people, the, the rate at which we're losing young people, Lord, would we care about that? Would it be our own problem, not some far and distant problem? Lord, would you make it so on a personal level, and would you make it so for Oikos? Would this place be different? Would you use us to uh, slow the tide, Lord? Would you show us, would you give us wisdom of how to do it differently? God, would you equip us? Um, would you give us courage? Would you help us to be willing to put whatever we need to at your feet? Lord, whether it's in our schedules, whether it's in the ways that um, we've done things before, would you help us to be willing to hold it all with open hands so that things can be different, Lord? God, we beg you um, to guard our children. We beg you to guard our teenagers, our college students, our young adults. Lord, we beg you to guard our parents and our young families, our older adults. God, we ask you boldly that not a single child at Oikos Church would fall away. God, would you make it so that they have a faith that's enduring? God, would you equip us to pass it down, not just parents, but spiritual mothers and fathers? Would you connect our children and our teenagers and our college students and our young adults to older mothers and fathers in the faith that can help them be rooted that can walk through these life transitions with them, that can give them passed down and enduring faith. God, would there be um, conversations that happen around the table where young people are asked about their faith, where they learn to speak about it, where they learn 
to talk about it even as they're walking it out, Lord. Would it not be a religion of niceness, Lord, but it would be a religion of, um, of the true gospel of what Jesus has done and that he is king and he is king over all heaven and earth, not just in the church building. God, would that be true in each of our lives and would our children see it? Would we model it for them and when they learn to walk it out on their own? God, again, we can do none of this without you. We know we are little and small and we are weak. We feel that as we see this big problem. But God, we trust what you can do. And so we open our hearts and we open our hands and we open our lives and we ask you to move. In our time, God, would you make this in our time? Would this be not just a problem that we see in our time, but would we get to live to see the renewal, the changing of the tides, Lord? Would you let us be a part of it? God, you've made this community here. You've planted a different kind of church that is doing different things. And we ask, would you let us be a part of this? God, would you let us figure out different ways to do this, to change the tide? Would you do it in our time, Lord? Would you make a renewal? Would you pour out your spirit? And would you change what is happening in our country and in our churches? And would you let Waco's church be a part of that? We beg you, Lord. In our time, would you do this? In Jesus' powerful name, we know and we trust and we ask. Amen.